Well, as we continue to worship the Lord by focusing our minds on His Word, I would invite you to turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to John chapter 3 for today's message entitled, You Must Be Born Again. Our text for today is John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And in this text, we see Jesus reveal what enables a person to believe. Last week, we saw that the disciples exhibited childlike, sincere, genuine faith. But the crowds had a superficial faith. And we could ask the question, why is it that some people believe and persevere? Some people believe and fall away? And other people don't believe at all. Well, the answer is because the Spirit must produce life in order for faith to be real. Now, last week I I said to you that depending on how disciplined I would be with this passage, uh, next week we would look at John 3.16 as part of our missions weekend. And I will preach John 3.16 next weekend, but I'm not going to finish this text today. And so what we're going to do is uh, look at John 3.16 next week in a laser-focused, uh, emphatic way. And then in a few weeks, we'll come back because then uh, the following Sunday, uh, Mike Jarvis will be preaching. Uh, we may have another guest preacher the week after that. But uh, in a few weeks, we'll come back, pick up where we left off here, and then move forward. And then we'll cover John 3.16 again in the context uh, that, that we find it in. So just be aware of of that. We're not going to get through the passage, but for the sake of context, follow along as I read chapter 3 of John, verses 1 to 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness about what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, with this passage open before us, we submit our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit would reveal to us today. Open our minds. Illumine our hearts. 
show us Christ. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Give sight to blind eyes, hearing to deaf ears, and life to dead souls. We believe, Holy Spirit, that you and you alone can save and sanctify. And so we pray that you would do it today for the glory of Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. There are only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Within the religion of human achievement, there is every religion known to man except one. This includes Islam, Roman Catholicism, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and every other religion known to man, save one. Though every religion has its own concept of God and man and what our problem is, what unifies them all is that the way of salvation, whatever their definition of salvation is, their way of salvation is you working to save yourself. Those are religions of human achievement. Within the religion of divine accomplishment, there is only one. Biblical Christianity. As revealed in the Bible and in our text, salvation is accomplished by God. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. You cannot cooperate with God or entice Him to do it in your life. God and God alone is the agent of salvation. It is His work that grants eternal life. This is the religion of divine accomplishment. This is what we're taught here by Jesus through his conversation with Nicodemus. And in this passage, we learn three requirements for eternal life. Three requirements to have eternal life. First, the first requirement to have eternal life, you must be born again. The second requirement to have eternal life, you must be born of God. And the third requirement of eternal life is you must believe in Jesus. We'll cover the first and part of the second today, and we'll come back in a few weeks and finish our study. And my prayer to you, for, for you, beloved, is that if you have been born again and have believed in Jesus, that you will rejoice in God's salvation in your life. But if you have not been born again, and if you have not believed in Jesus, my prayer for you today is that in this room, that the Spirit would move among us and that He would give you life and enable you to believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Jesus teaches these three requirements for eternal life to this man named Nicodemus. Verse 1 tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and not just any Pharisee, he was, it says, a ruler of the Jews. And this means he wasn't just one of the 6,000 Pharisees that were spread all throughout the land of Israel. He was one of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body of Israel made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the Levites in Israel. They, they, as Levites, managed the temple. They held fastidiously to the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they rejected anything outside of those five books. 
they were a kind of naturalist. They rejected the supernatural in terms of angels and the afterlife. They, they didn't find such teachings in the, the first five books of Moses. And they also rejected anything that they would uh, perceive to be man-made tradition or doctrine. The Pharisees, on the other hand, embraced the whole of what we would call the Old Testament, but they also elevated the oral tradition that had been developed over years and put it on the same level as Scripture. And we know that whenever you put Scripture right alongside anything else, Scripture always falls underneath and becomes subservient to whatever you put in its place. The Pharisees embraced the spiritual realm. They believed in angels. They believed in life after death. Uh, And really, they were the religious leaders of Israel because they oversaw the synagogues all throughout Israel, whereas the Sadducees were primarily located in Jerusalem, the center of civil government and temple worship. Uh, The Romans allowed the Sanhedrin a lot of uh, uh, freedom to preside over the civil and religious affairs of the nation. Uh, One exception to that, among others, is that they were not allowed to enact the death penalty, which is why the Romans had to get involved in the death of Jesus. But the the Sanhedrin had more Sadducees than Pharisees. But because the Pharisees had more sway among the people, there was a kind of balance between them. All this to say, Nicodemus was a prominent figure, perhaps a significant teacher As indicated in verse 10, when Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel? We don't know if that's an official title, but that would indicate that Nicodemus is a man of importance, a man of influence, a man who desires to to hold on to true religion. This is Nicodemus. Well, look at what verse 2 says. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus. Stop there. Literally, it came to him, but it's understood to be a reference to Jesus. Nicodemus was well aware of the signs Jesus performed in Jerusalem. This is still, uh, this is perhaps at the latter end, if not after the Passover that uh, we learned about over the last uh, couple of weeks, looking at Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Nicodemus was aware of the things that Jesus taught and the signs he performed. And unlike the rest of the Jewish leaders who stayed home, showing relative disinterest in Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus. The Gospels tell us many occasions when the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come to Jesus, but their purpose in coming to him was to trap him, to try and get him to say something that would allow them to condemn him and bring accusation against him. But that's not why Nicodemus came. He came to to talk to Jesus. He, he uh, He wanted to know what Jesus thought on various matters. And the way this conversation goes, that there was a genuine interest to have a conversation uh, with this man named Jesus that Nicodemus was observing and hearing about. Well, verse 2 goes on to say that this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. There are many interpreters who would take this as a Uh, a metaphor for darkness, as though Nicodemus is an agent of darkness who's coming to the light of Christ. Uh, That interpretation is actually quite popular, but uh, it it really tries too hard to find meaning where the Holy Spirit hasn't given it. And I only mention it because it's something that you'll come across if you do any particular study or reading of this section of Scripture. And I want you to remember that when you interpret the Bible, 
the meaning is found in the text. It's in the words, it's in the grammar, it's in the context. Darkness and light are themes in the Gospel of John, but whenever they appear, it's obvious because John uses the words darkness and light in contrast to each other. So here, night means night, (laughs) even though it happens to be dark and night. The truth is that Nicodemus came, uh, came at night speaks to his genuine interest to talk to Jesus. During the day, Jesus would have been surrounded by the crowds as he taught and performed his signs. During the day, it would have been the right time if his desire was to trap Jesus, to perhaps embarrass him, ask him gotcha questions. But it would have been impossible during the day to have a meaningful one-on-one conversation. And even if he had tried, his position there in the Sanhedrin would have raised questions in people's minds. Oh, why is a member of the Sanhedrin talking to Jesus? Do, Do they believe in him? So for both political and privacy reasons, it was necessary for Nicodemus to go to Jesus at night. So he comes to him at night and says to him, look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For there is no one who can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Rabbi is a term of respect for a uh, recognized teacher. It would later become a technical title for those who'd had the right education and were appointed to official positions. But at this time, it was simply a, a term for honor and respect. And we'll see it. as we we already have uh, throughout the gospel. Nicodemus says here, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And and in saying we know, he is not there representing the official position of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would not be quick to give their stamp of approval on a divine messenger. It seems that he's simply acknowledging the general opinion floating in the air as people responded to Jesus' ministry. And it would seem that he agreed with that opinion. And what is that opinion? Again, that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. This tells us that the signs that Jesus performed were working. They were pointing people to the greater reality of who Jesus is. But Nicodemus here is not entirely correct. He he speaks with confidence of what the signs indicate, that, that Jesus is a divinely sent teacher. But He doesn't yet understand the fullness of who Jesus is. That he is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's important to recognize that what, uh, it's important to recognize what Nicodemus says here because this tells us that the signs that Jesus performed were not simply magic tricks that amaze people. Though this was before the scientific age, the people understood reality. They knew that raising the dead and giving sight to the blind and healing the, the lame and casting out demons were, were supernatural powers. If Jesus came to earth today and performed those miracles, we would not be able to come up with scientific ex- explanations. We would recognize just as much as they did that it requires supernatural power. And so Nicodemus is right when he says no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, in, in time, the Jewish leaders would come to the point where they would reject the opinion of the people as they interpreted the signs of Jesus. We read in John chapter 9 how the man born blind came to the conclusion that Jesus was a prophet, because after all, who else can give sight to the blind? But they denied it, the Jewish leaders did. At the same time, they never denied the acts of power themselves. They couldn't. They were too obvious to everyone. 
And so unable to deny it, the Pharisees eventually collectively concluded in Matthew 9.34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They concluded he was demonically possessed and empowered. But at this early stage, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Uh, He had not yet offended the Pharisees by his teaching. And so Nicodemus gladly acknowledges the obvious truth that Jesus was empowered by God. But his failure to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, demonstrates that while he thought he could see the spiritual realm, he was actually blind to it. He thought he could observe Jesus and draw Accurate conclusions, but he couldn't. That's obvious enough from his words. We don't know his heart, whether he took pride in his education or his experience, his theological knowledge. If, if he perhaps believed himself to have unique spiritual insight, we don't know those things. But, but Jesus' response to what Nicodemus says is a direct affront to what Nicodemus thought he knew about Jesus. Look at how Jesus responded there in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My friends, you must be born again. This is the first requirement to have eternal life. You must be born again. Though here in verse 3, Jesus states this truth in the third person, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the or see the kingdom of God. In verse 7, Jesus repeats this truth in the second person. You must be born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom of God is a way of describing eternal life. Eternal life is is not a length of life as much as it is a quality of life. And, And not quality in terms of lifestyle, but quality in terms of being spiritually alive, able to to know God and to understand God's revelation in His Word and be able to live the life that God has designed you to live by the power of His Spirit. This is why Jesus says that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Let's walk through this in detail. Notice how uh, John introduces Jesus' words there in in verse 3. He says, Jesus answered him, literally, In the Greek, it says, Jesus answered and said to him. Until this week, to be honest with you, I never really understood the relationship between what Jesus said and what Nicodemus said. So I always just assumed that Nicodemus said what he said and Jesus ignored it and changed the subject and moved on. (laughs) But those introductory words there are important. Remember, the meaning is in the words. Jesus responded, answered Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't ask a question, but Jesus responded to what he said. In fact, Nicodemus said, Jesus, we we hear you teach and we see you do these signs. And based on what we observe, we know that you are a teacher of God. And Jesus responds, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot know spiritual truth. You think you know who I am, but you do not know who I am because you've not been born again. That's the logic of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus. But let's not skip over this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. We'll say it again in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you. And then again in verse 11, 
that phrase actually marks the progression of revelation as Jesus unfolds truth to Nicodemus. And that's really what presents us with the three requirements to have eternal life. It truly, truly translates the Greek words, Amen, Amen. When we say Amen to end a prayer, that's not a way of saying the end. Prayer over. What we're communicating when we say amen is truly. Let it be true. It's really a final plea to the Lord that he would hear and answer our prayers. When we say amen during a sermon or even in a conversation, what we're saying is we're affirming the truth that's being spoken. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you 26 times. And every time he begins a statement with that phrase, he signals that he's about to reveal something important. So you better pay attention. It's like in the course of every conversation where Jesus uses these words, he he gives this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you to slow it down. Are you listening? Pay attention. Everything Jesus says, of course, is important, but this is, this is sounding the alarm and flashing the lights. Slow down and listen. In fact, if you want to do a helpful meditation on Scripture, just do a quick search in your Bible app for truly, truly, I say to you. You'll find the 26 times in the Gospel of John. And you can just sit and read through each of those verses. You only need the, the verse itself. And just consider what is Jesus revealing? There's a lot of powerful truth in those statements as we'll study throughout the Gospel. Well, let's ponder this one together, shall we? Look again at what Jesus says in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. The word again there is usually a directional term that that can be translated top, like the curtain that's torn from top to bottom. Uh, It can mean from above, as in wisdom that is from above. That meaning works here. You could say that Jesus is saying that you must be born from above. And that meaning certainly fits with what he says in verse 5 about being born of water and the Spirit. But here and in verse 7, he seems to be using it in the sense of again. And actually the way Nicodemus responds would indicate that as well. And Jesus says here, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And connecting those two ideas, being born again and seeing the kingdom of God, what Jesus means is that the kingdom of God is a world into which you are born. All people are born into the kingdom of this world. Some people are born into the kingdom of God. In the same way that when we are born into this world, we can see this world, we we, we have physical eyes to see the physical world. We perceive it. We interact with it. We grow and mature. We learn how to engage in, and uh, live in this world. And so it is that we must be born again to see the spiritual world, to perceive spiritual truth, to interact with spiritual realities, to, to grow and mature and, and learn and become adept at living in the kingdom of God. Now, to some, that might sound a little bit bizarre, as if we're talking about being able to see the spiritual dimension with our physical eyes, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that those who are born again can see angels and demons moving around doing their their work. He doesn't mean that 
Those in the kingdom of God have supernatural abilities or in some way live outside the physical realm. Rather, to see the kingdom of God means that you have awareness that there is more to reality than the physical realm. And not just awareness, but understanding and insight and ability ability to live in light of the realities that extend beyond the physical world. This is this ability is not something that comes automatically all at once for someone who's born again, but is something that we grow in as we grow in the knowledge that's found in God's word. Until we are born again, we are blind to the things of God. There are those who look at the physical eye with all of its intricacies that are beyond explanation. They, they see the complexities and how it works together with the brain to provide the ability to see. And yet what they see is a complex organism that they conclude was produced by millions of years of chance-based evolution. And those same individuals, many of them will be looking through glasses that were designed and made by people using machines that were also made by people because, and they're convinced that that's the case because nature can't produce something so precise and complex. Why can they not see that the exponentially more complex eyeball is designed and created by an intelligent and powerful being? It's because they are dead to the spiritual realm. They cannot see the kingdom of God. They can't see and perceive and understand and accept that God exists. And as the divine creator, he has revealed himself in scripture and how the eyeball came to be. They see the eye, but they are blind to the truth. Now, you might say that there are many indeed who look at the eye and conclude that, yes, God made that or some God made that. The reason that's the case is because God has made us in his image and there is a built-in sense of the divine that sin causes us to suppress and distort. The fact that anyone fails and and refuses even to acknowledge that the, the eyeball, along with everything else, was created by God who revealed himself in the scripture, came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, is because they cannot see the kingdom of God. They are dead to reality as God has revealed it. Nicodemus could observe Jesus and he could come to the conclusion that there is something unique about this man. He is connected to the divine. But he could not see the reality of who Jesus is. He didn't have spiritual eyes to see spiritual reality. He didn't have a spiritual mind to understand spiritual truth. The Bible describes this condition as being dead to God. This is the condition all people are born into in this world. We're born dead, blind, and deaf to the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Being dead to God means that the only life available to us is to live out of our own passions 
and desires and cravings. Quoting the Old Testament, Paul describes this condition in Romans 3 when he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's a description of mankind apart from God. Using the mouth to deceive and to spew hatred and using the body to cause destruction are not learned behaviors. They are natural instincts that show up at the earliest stages of life, which thankfully can be tamed, but must be kept under control through all all of life because they are natural tendencies. Well, those passages, Ephesians 2 and Romans 3, describe the fallen condition in terms of our rebellion against God. You notice that, that that ended. There was no fear of God before their eyes. But it's not as though... Sinners who are dead to God can simply be told to cease hostilities and submit to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is the person who's born into this natural world, dead to the spiritual world. And because they are natural, they are incapable, it says, of understanding spiritual realities. Paul again describes this inability in Romans chapter 8, where he says in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's not just that those who are dead to God don't want to please God. That's true, but it's more fundamentally true that they lack the capacity to do so. As a result of this inability to understand the things of God, to to please God, everyone born into this world lives for themselves according to their own passions and desires. And despite having the revelation of God all around them, that he exists, that he is powerful, they deny and suppress what is right before them. We see this in Romans 1, 18, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is the death that God promised to Adam and Eve in the garden when he warned them not to eat of that one tree. Physical death was included in that warning, but spiritual death, the becoming of dead to God is what God also meant. There was that spiritual death that cut humanity off from the kingdom of God. That's why all people, you and me, are born into this world dead to God. And because we are 
Sinners by nature and sinners by choice, we lack the functional capacities to see the kingdom of God. We, we cannot understand the truth. We can't please God. We therefore live entirely out of our passions and desires, and we suppress anything that would otherwise point us to the truth of God. Nicodemus here represents the best that one can do who is dead to God. You can see Jesus' signs, you can hear Jesus' teaching, and you can conclude that there's something unique about this man. But you cannot truly know him and draw right conclusions about him because you're blind to the kingdom of God. The only way, the only way that that condition can change is if we experience a fundamentally new life. If we are born again. And so it is that Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, in in his spiritually dead condition, Nicodemus is confused. He doesn't understand. And so he responds in verse 4. Look at it. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, this is an absurd interpretation of what Jesus means, and Nicodemus knows it. Though he ought to know the scripture that speak of the spiritual realities Jesus is teaching, because he can't understand the things of God truly, he doesn't see that Jesus is speaking in metaphor. And the absurdity of being physically born a second time is the only interpretation he can come up with. Now, to his credit, If we can give him some, Nicodemus recognizes one thing accurately. He understands that something radical has to change. It's not lost on him that Jesus speaks here of something beyond natural human ability. But then we need to take that credit away because notice that Nicodemus assumes that this new birth must be done by the person. Look again at his second question there in verse 4. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. The verb be born there is is a passive verb because it's a law of nature that you can't birth yourself. (laughs) You are born. And so it is with spiritual birth. But Nicodemus' thinking is uh, so man-centered and works-oriented that even when presented with this requirement that you must be born again, he assumes that somehow you must play a part in putting yourself in a position to be born again. And so to correct that mistaken notion, Jesus reveals the second requirement to have eternal life. Not only must you be born again, but the birth that you experience must be accomplished by God. Or to put it this way, the second requirement is that you must be born of God. You must be born of God. Look at verses 5 to 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the new birth, Jesus says here, is brought about by the Spirit of God. To be born again is to be born 
of the Spirit. There's no human agency involved in being born in the Spirit. God is the agent of salvation. He is the one who accomplishes salvation. It's He who saves us and not we ourselves. And to remove any doubt that that's what Jesus means, He expresses this divine work of salvation in three ways. He he says here that being born of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant promises of God. He also says it's outside the physical realm and it's imperceivable to physical senses. We'll finish our time just by considering that first part there in verse 6, or rather 5. So look again at verse 5 to see that being born of God is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice again how he says there, truly, truly, I say to you, this is an important truth, Jesus is saying. This is divine revelation of life-changing importance. So let's listen up. And so he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Did you notice that in verse 3, Jesus says, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5 here, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Seeing and entering really refer to the same reality, but he uses the word enter here as a play on Nicodemus' statement of entering into the mother's womb. You can't be born again by entering into your mother's womb, but once you're born again, you enter into the kingdom of God. Now, how does this happen? How does the new birth take place? Well, he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. There's a lot of ink spilled over what does this mean. There are those who say that water refers to the amniotic fluid in which a a baby is born. And so Jesus is simply saying here that you need to be born physically, and then you need to be born spiritually. Well, that's a true statement, but I think it's a bit too obvious. It's like saying, before God can save you, you have to exist. It's a little on the nose, if you ask me. You know, sometimes in conversations we say things like, it goes without saying, but, and then you say something that's obvious to everybody. But there are some things that are so obvious, they don't even cross your mind to, to have to say those things. And so for that reason and others, I don't find this interpretation particularly convincing. Another interpretation here is that water refers to baptism, that you must be baptized to enter the kingdom of God. Some take this in the direction that baptism is a requirement for salvation. Others take it in the direction of what's called baptismal regeneration, that the act of water baptism itself is what brings about the new birth by the Spirit. To add evidence to support the views, some would point to Acts 2.38 where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, passages like that seem to lend support to the idea that baptism is a requirement for salvation, but this interpretation fails on at least three counts. First, it, it makes salvation dependent on you. Something that you can even plan and schedule on this day. And at this time, I'm going to be baptized and that's when I'm going to be saved. Second, passages like Acts 2.38 and others that are 
or like it can easily be referred or understood in the, both in the immediate and broader context to refer to baptism as a response to salvation, not as a requirement of it. But then third, there are many passages of Scripture, as we'll see in a moment, that speak of God bringing about salvation without any reference to baptism at all. And so if that's what Jesus means here, then the rest of Scripture is quite silent about it. So the best interpretation, which is both faithful to the text and most consistent with the abundance of biblical teaching, is that being born of water and the Spirit refers to the new covenant promises of divine salvation. Now, there's a couple of passages in the Old Testament that speak of the new covenant, uh, one in Jeremiah and one in Ezekiel. And it's Ezekiel that we, deserves our attention. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27 says this, and listen for those terms, water and spirit. This is the Lord speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant is the promise by God in the Old Testament of how he would redeem his people. It's not just God's promise of salvation, it's God's method of salvation. In other words, when God saves, he washes away our sin and he grants us a new heart and he implants his spirit within you. And he does those things not on the basis of what you do or have done or could do, but solely by his sovereign grace. Paul uses the language of washing and granting of the Spirit in Titus 3, starting in verse 4, when he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become partakers according to the hope of eternal life. Those acts by God, cleansing from sin, granting the new heart, and implanting His Spirit is what it means to be born again. It's to have your sins forgiven. It's to be given spiritual life. And it's to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. My friends, when God does that in your life, you enter and see the kingdom of God. And for the first and the first natural act of a reborn child of God is to take a deep breath of this life that God has given you. And that first breath is what we call faith. With new eyes to see and new ears to hear and a new heart to understand, we see our sin for the ugliness that it is, and we see Christ in all of his glory, and we believe. So the new birth leads to faith. Turn back a couple pages to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where we were introduced to this reality. After saying that Jesus was not known by the world, that 
his own people, the Jews rejected him. Look at his explanation of how it is that some believe. This is John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth comes before believing out of necessity because in our natural state, we are incapable of seeing and hearing and believing as we've said earlier. And so God, Ephesians 2.4 tells us, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. To be made alive is to be born again. And so 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 explodes with praise saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then James adds his voice to the chorus in one, chapter 1, verse 18. Of His own will, not of ours, but of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, the result of this new birth is that we can now see the kingdom of God. Earlier, I quoted from 1 Corinthians 2, where it tells us that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Verse 12 of that chapter says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So it's only by being born of water and the Spirit that we can see and enter the kingdom of God. So when, when God accomplishes the new birth in a person's life, that is the fulfillment of the new covenant, which can only be a work of God. Well, we'll come back to this in a few weeks to see how Jesus further adds to this revelation that the new birth is a divine act unaided by human effort. And that belief is not a work that contributes to salvation, but a response to the salvation accomplished by God. But to draw our time to a close, I want to draw your attention to verse 7. Jesus says here, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do you now see why Jesus says you must be born again? It's because you must be born again. <laughs> you and I are lost apart from Christ. We're destined for eternal wrath. We're born with a sinful nature. We live a life of sin. And you and I have earned for ourselves condemnation from a just and holy God. He's only been good to us. He's, he's given us life and he's blessed us with innumerable blessings. And he gives us life and breath in all things, Scripture says. And, and yet we're born hostile to him. We... In our own natural state, we, we want nothing to do with Him. We live as though He were dead, and then when His commands and His standards come into our mind and are pressed upon us, we wish He were dead so that we would not be held accountable. If we had the opportunity, we would be glad to be the ones who would put God to death. If we had lived in this time, on that 
at that Passover when Jesus stood trial before Pilate. If God's grace had not been at work with us, we would gladly join our voice to the chorus saying, crucify him, crucify him. And why would we do such a thing? Because we would be dead and blind and unable to accept the things of God. Some of you are still in that condition. Maybe you're sitting here realizing that your whole life you've been, or for whatever length of time, you've been reading the Bible, you've been hearing preaching, you've been having conversations, but it's never penetrated your soul. And you now know that that's because you have not been born again. You've been spiritually dead your whole life. Perhaps you thought you could work your way to salvation. That you could do enough things to make God save you or outweigh the bad in your life. My friends, there, uh, you've got it all wrong. There is only one way to be saved, and that is this. You must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God do a work in your soul to grant you spiritual life. He and He alone can accomplish that regeneration that your soul needs. He and He alone can wash away your sin and give you a new heart and grant you His Holy Spirit. And perhaps, perhaps even now your heart is being warmed to these truths and you're, you can see these realities like never before. Perhaps your, your mind is understanding things that you've never understood before. And I would just appeal to you, believe Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world and lived a perfect and sinless life and He gave up His life and was crucified so that He could take upon Himself the penalty that sinners deserved. And after dying, He was buried for three days, but then He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. And then He ascended into heaven where He sits right now at the right hand of the Father where He will come down one day to bring His people to Himself. Believe in Jesus Christ so that you can be with Him when He comes and He not be your judge. Now, if you're sitting there and this means nothing to you, the words don't make sense, the ideas are foolish, even offensive, I would plead with you to plead with God that He would give you life. Pray to God that you might be born again. Ask Him for the gift of spiritual life and the ability to believe. Because if you don't believe, before you die, you will never see or enter the kingdom of God. You will only and forever see and enter the lake of fire where you will experience torment forever. So cry out to the Lord to, to grant you life and, and then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, for those of you, many of you who have been born again, rejoice. Celebrate the life you've been given, knowing, knowing that it's not something you've done yourself, but it's something that God has done for you that you did not deserve. You deserved His wrath, but He gave you His life, His grace, His love. And with the life that you've been given, live it for Christ. Remember the words of 2 Corinthians 5.15 that He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So live your life 
for Him who washed away your sin and gave you His Holy Spirit. And, and then grab hold of every opportunity the Lord gives you to proclaim that life, that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around you and be sure to tell them you must be born again. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do this today? Would you cause those who are dead in this room, those who can hear this, to be born again? That they might experience the life, the joy, the comfort, the freedom that you have to offer Would you give them the faith to believe, the courage to die to themselves and to thrust themselves on the merciful hands of Christ, knowing that they will be received and forgiven. Lord, for us who have been born again, who for whatever length of time we have seen the kingdom of God, we've been taught the truth, we've enjoyed and relished in being your children, knowing you, growing in our knowledge of of you, looking forward to the day when we will be with you. Though this truth is basic, let us never move beyond it. Let us allow it to thrill our souls and grant us joy and thanksgiving and praise to you so that we would honor you and glorify you with our lives. In Christ's name, amen.